back to it. So we're going to be in Matthew 22, verses 34 and following, uh, which I hope will be, um, here's a word for you, paradigmatic. You like that? Please uh, <laughs> tell Which I hope will be, um, kind of shed some light on um, this whole passage, which is the testing of Jesus. And this is really the last we see of people coming up to Jesus and kind of pushing into him before the Olivet Discourse flows into his, his passion and his death and resurrection and his final time with his disciples. And so this is it. This is sort of the end of that narrative um, before we get to the passion and the end of that uh, rubbing shoulder to shoulder with people before we get to to his final sermon and his his um, final final days of his life and then his new first days of his new life, as it were. Um, so we're going to look at this passage, but I want to kind of ease into it with a couple of thoughts on uh, the law and the prophets. This phrase that's used by Matthew a handful of times is, can you think of, we've been through Matthew, and uh, can you think of any time in the book of Matthew where he uses the phrase, the law and the prophets? There's a couple of biggies that um, that you might sort of go, is that, is that one of them? Uh, is that... A couple times in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses that phrase, and um, he's talking about John the Baptist, and actually this passage. So, uh, Sermon on the Mount, can you think of Sermon on the Mount instances where Jesus uses the phrase, the law and the prophets? I know it was on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I know, it's not a phrase that you necessarily jumps out at you when you're reading, one of them is, in fact, the golden rule. Uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. A uh, really interesting one is Matthew 11, where he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, the law and the prophets prophesied up until John. And now the kingdom of heaven advances. And so he gives this cool sweeping statement saying that the entire Old Testament, not just the prophecies per se, but the law and the prophets, the, the stories and the writings and the wisdom and, and the instructions and the laws, all of them are prophesying. They're, they're going to find their fulfillment in something outside of themselves. They're pointing to something else. All Everything up until John the Baptist is prophesying and is pointing towards, in fact, what is it pointing towards? Well, that actually is, Jesus gets right to the point in, in Matthew 5 when he says, Matthew five seventeen, do not think that I came to, can you finish that? Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfills every jot and tittle from Genesis 1 till whatever book you happen to consider the last book of the Old Testament. We'll go ahead with, say, Malachi 4. Everything from the beginning of creation until sort of this 
final catastrophic end and rebirth, as it were, of, of Israel. Everything in the Old Testament scriptures, all the way up till John the Baptist, Jesus fulfills. He is the fulfillment. Anything that finds its rightful continuation or its resolution has to be seen through Jesus. If anything continues beyond, if any prophecies yet remain, it has to be seen as somehow through Jesus. Because of Jesus, it finds its rightful continuation. Because of its ultimate fulfillment, it finds its, or because of its penultimate fulfillment, it finds its ultimate fulfillment, as it were, in a certain sense. Uh, penultimate being pre, in case you were wondering what penultimate meant. Yeah, it means the one right before the ultimate. It's penultimate, which I learned actually on um, 97.1 The Fan. I was listening to ESPN Talk Radio, and one of the announcers informed me what penultimate meant. I know Mike and Mike in the morning can be very informative. I'll have you know. Uh, as well as other radio stations, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't mean to narrow your focus. But um, I want to take a look at these instances of, of law and the prophets. And really, and then the last one, the last time you see of you see Matthew 5, Matthew 7, Matthew 11, and only one more time in the book of Matthew does he talk about the law and the prophets. And it's right there in Matthew 22. And uh, can somebody find that verse and read it for us? It's a little pop quiz. What does it say, law and the prophets, in Matthew 22? 40. And just up until that point, can you read 37 to 40, Chris? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Yeah, thanks. And that's it. When you get to law, what does Matthew have to say about the law and the prophets? We've got just these... It's particularly these few instances, and I want to make comment on that. And it really finds it comes to a head right here in Matthew 22. But let me let me back up significantly, and do just a bit of um, sadly philosophy. Man, I believe this is actually theology more than anything else. Man was created for an end. There's an end to what it means to be a man. There's a fulfillment to what it means to be a person. You were made, and there's actually something that completes you that fulfills you that really wakes you up. And uh, the, the shorter Westminster Catechism says something to that end. Does anybody know that really classic passage on the shorter Westminster Catechism of the question is asked, to what end was man created? And the answer is given to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is what the historical Christian church, at least, the 16th century Reformed church, but I think it is a pretty representative of the historical Christian church, has said what it means to be a man. Why am I? Why do I exist? Uh, Saddleback Church expanded that out. They have five purposes to life. And, and I think that that's helpful. It's not... Um, it's not the whole story, and so the mistake would be to think that that's the whole story, uh, but it's not necessarily wrong. Uh, but what, they've, what the historical Christian church has really tried to do is capture what end, to what end are we created, and it's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
and that has been stated variously. And the way it helps to break that down for me is we were created for a natural end and a supernatural end. We kind of have this joint things. And I really, it really boils down to one thing. It's the vision of God. What's going to make you happy? What's going to what, what's going to blow your brain so much that you couldn't possibly look away, sin, consider yourself better, enjoy something else more, want something else different, fall into the trap of Adam and Eve and look for they they decided what was good for themselves. And the fall into the trap in the book of Judges, where there was no king in the land, and each man did what was good in his own eyes. Choosing what's good for yourself, that's the trap. But the vision of God blows that away. Suddenly there's no question of what's good. That's it. That's it. You can't look away. Satan didn't even want to look. If I look, I'll enjoy him and worship him forever. I don't even want to look. I would sooner have the freedom to worship myself and to choose for myself what is good than to even look and be unbelievably happy and blissful. I don't even want to look. That's why, of course, hell's doors are locked from the inside. You don't even want to look. So we were created to be, first off, a natural happiness, which I feel is virtue. This is, in fact, glorifying God in this life. You were created to be happy in this life. And here's what happiness is. I mean something specific by that. No fleeting emotional state I have in mind here. You were created to be virtuous, which is the sanctification of your emotions. You feel a broad range. You feel a deep range of emotions. You really have the heart of Christ. You were created to act virtuously, to be generous and kind and thoughtful and and patient and gentle and the fruit of the Spirit as exhibited in your actions. Not just what you do, but but out of what, I mean, out of the overflow of the heart, you're acting. You, you don't just act gently because it seemed like a wise thing. No, no, you act gentle because you're a gentle person. You're a kind person. Because Christ is just changing who you are. And also your mind. Your mind was meant to be sanctified as well. You're meant to think about, about truth and about practical things. Prudent and wise things. Sort of prudence as the chief of the virtues then. You, you, not just you're a gentle person, but you act gentle appropriately in the right situation. Not just generous for the sake, oh, I'm a generous person. I, well, no, you have to be wise about it. I'm a generous person. I just write a check. When I, no, no, no. Exactly. <laughs> let's, let's give it some time. Let's be wise about this. The chief of the, chief of the natural virtues. Let's be wise about this. And so, it is to become holy, sanctified. It is the will of God for you, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The will of God for you is this, your sanctification. Now, you're also created for a supernatural end. And this really is just seeing God. And the natural end is meant to be that. Like, you do whatever you can to experience God now, and that is the virtuous life. But in the life to come, you will find this ultimate supernatural end. And actually, C.S. Lewis gave a rather famous quote, and he said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This is your supernatural end. C.S. Lewis saw it as the only logical explanation for these unfulfilled desires. We were 
created with desires that nothing in this life can fulfill. And we actually need somebody to tell us what that is. There's no way you can know your supernatural end just by thinking about it. You need God to plop some special revelation into your lap and open it up and say, here is what I want you to become. As you read through the Law and the Prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, these are the themes which come out, I really feel. What is your end naturally and what is your end supernaturally? I think this is what unifies the text of the Old Testament. There's been no shortage of argument about what themes give unity to the Bible. What, what one thing gives unity? What theme gives you? Well, eventually you start leaving things out. Oh, it's God's story. Oh, it's the story. Okay, well, how does Proverbs fit in? That's an interlude in the story where it's less story. It's, well, it's hard to, I don't disagree. God's story is prominent throughout. But I think what gives broad unity to the whole of the text, specifically the Old Testament, is pointing towards what is your, what is your end? What is the end of man? What were you created for? What will make you satisfied? What will give you life? And that is your natural and your supernatural end, the sanctified life and the vision of God. And the Old Testament points to that. What? Let me ask a couple questions. Chapter 11 states, All the law and the prophets prophesied until John the Baptist. And what did they prophesy about until the establishment of the kingdom? What did the entirety of the Old Testament point to? Well, Matthew 5.17, Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Every story, every law, every commandment, every piece of wisdom points to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. It finds its legitimate continuity and its fulfillment in Jesus. Everything moves forward from our perspective only through Jesus and the work of Jesus. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? How does he fulfill everything written there? How does he fulfill the end of man? I think that's what we're going to get into when it comes to this passage. Chris read it. Let me read it again. Matthew 22. And there's just been a series of challenges. In fact, Matthew twenty-two fifteen talks about the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. This is on the heels of his stunningly harsh criticism of them in the previous three parables where he's saying, you do not know my authority. You do not know me. You don't get it. You take the place of the elders of the people and you're not qualified. You're those kind of sons who say they're going to work in God's vineyard and who who failed to do so. That's who you are. And so the Pharisees immediately push back and they plot together. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, know that we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. We're not really going to get into that much. I just want to set the context. And in fact, if you want to see the, coal, the, the coin for the poll tax, we've got one tonight, which is great. It's fantastic. He has his shekel bang on him right here. Have you guys seen his shekel? Right here. Look, it's got... Uh, whose face is that? Um... He's got a pizza place. Caesar. Caesar. Bangarang. Caesar. 
got it if you want to see one. It's really cool. Like that. You see that? I'm sure you can. I've got a modern shekel. I don't think it has Caesar's face on. It doesn't. <laughs> they didn't like it. It's not old home week in Israel. <laughs> Let's put Augustus on there. <laughs> it's sort of contrary to the whole. Yeah. When asked by the Pharisees, I. <laughs> Subplot. And so you get this testing by the Pharisees, and then on the heels of that, Sadducees are like, hey, well, we got him. We'll, we'll get him. They, you foiled the Pharisees, but we Sadducees, you know, we're sharp. We run, we run things around here. We got the political power. We'll give them a really tough question about the resurrection. We don't think, it, we don't think it's going to happen. And actually, that was one of my favorite verses in high school, wasn't it? Matthew 22, 27, was that it? In the NIV, does anybody have the NIV? No, it's terrible. I won't do that. <laughs> Does anybody have the NIV in Matthew 27? Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> See, Wade thought it was hilarious. It's on my side. Uh, they give this. <laughs> they give this story of a man who who marries a, a woman and who passes away and, and consecutively marries her sisters who all die and finally the. Last woman dies. And, uh, no, it's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah. It's the woman who marries all the brothers. But they just, disbelieving the resurrection, think they have found a, a hole in this story. And how can one person be married to one woman in the afterlife when sometimes people are married to more than one woman on this side of life? And Jesus just gives them straight to the point, and you are... How does he, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. And he goes on to lay into their little gap theory of, oh, I found a hole in your whole resurrection thing. And then he, finally, the last test that we have is verse 34 and following. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, and this is what Chris has just read, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. Everything hangs on this. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. You are commanded to, I kid you not, flourish. You are absolutely commanded to fall in love with God. You are commanded to fulfill your supernatural end, to see God face to face, because then you will love him. You are commanded to find your end in God. It is a supernatural end, one which you cannot learn on your own, but which must be revealed to you. You wouldn't know it unless God commanded it. In fact, it's a whole different way of looking at the laws of God. They are signposts so that you will love Him. God didn't, it's not a duty based system, it's a you're not going to get it unless I tell you system. It is a, I want you to live. So here are the signposts pointing towards your natural end. Because what does God gain when you obey the rules? What does God gain when you follow the Ten Commandments? What is added to the life of God? 
nothing ever. He is fine without you. He is always and forever satisfied and happy in himself and in the Trinitarian communion. And when you follow his rules and seek him, all gain has accrued to you. All happiness is yours. He does it for you. And so his greatest commandment is that you flourish by loving God, your supernatural end. So what's the second great commandment? You're commanded to love others as you love yourself, the ultimate in natural sanctification, your natural end, your end on this side of, of death. It is the command of God, in fact, to live virtuously, to let your character, your emotions, and your thinking be for the good of your neighbor. Pursue the good life, the command of God. Pursue the flourishing life is, in fact, the command of God. So how does Jesus fulfill this? In fact, this is a uniquely Christian understanding. These are fulfilled for us in Christ. You are absolutely commanded to do these things, and you will be happy if you do it, and you will never get it done. But Christ does and invites you into that life. And this is cool because this gives you an insight into what in the world he's about to do on Calvary's Hill. He fulfills the supernatural end by dying on a cross because he loves God, first and foremost. Why does he die? Because he loves me? Yes, but not first. He's obeying the greatest commandment. He doesn't fall short of the greatest commandment. He, in fact, obeys the greatest commandment on Calvary by dying to appease the wrath of God for the sins of the world, putting death to death, giving the greatest example of love of all time, but manifestly all of that flows out of he dies because he loves God. That's why he's on a cross. It pleased God, so it was the joy of the Son in the midst of the pain. And secondly, Christ lived and died and rose again for the love of those he came to save. He calls us brothers and sisters now, as Paul makes abundantly clear, and brings us into his family. This, then, is the whole Old Testament, and it's what it was pointing to. Jesus, the God-man, is coming to embody love for God and love for man. And in so doing, he invites you into your end. He invites you to flourish, just like he's doing. And where does Jesus Christ flourish? And here's what really brings to a sharp halt our halting view of happiness, one which has a fleeting emotional state. Because where does Jesus flourish in the next chapters? Calvary. Love for God and love for men at its ultimate on Calvary's cross. The flourishing life. And he invites you to the same. Um, right through that grave into uh, new life. And that it's ironic this next passage is the Pharisees' question. And we'll go right into that. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? 
they said to him, the son of David. That's an easy one. We got one. It's been a while since they got one. They got one. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And you hear, I mean, there's no answer, but you can kind of hear sort of a guttural grunt. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. It's ironic that the Pharisees do not know who the Messiah is, and thus do not know who they are. They become again and again and again. What does it say? What are the eight woes of Matthew 23? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, here eight times, hypocrites. Say one thing, you do another. You're whitewashed tombs and you don't even know it. You think that you're the lovely white paint on the outside and you are full of dead man's bones. They do not understand how it could be that David would call the Messiah Lord because they do not understand that the whole Old Testament was pointing towards this Jesus standing in front of them, God himself offering himself for them. Hypocrisy is self-deception because of spiritual blindness. You don't know who you are because you don't know who Jesus is. In fact, idolatry leads to hypocrisy. And to add insult to injury, they themselves are hypocrites. They say one thing but do another. They are the second son who says, I will come to the vineyard and does not. They do not even know themselves but see only the whitewash and not the tomb. Without a vision of the authoritative word of God, Jesus is missed. And when Jesus is missed, the end to which you were created is missed. For Jesus and Jesus alone brings us to our happy end. If you miss who Jesus is, you will not flourish cannot flourish. All flourishing is found in God alone. To obey God, then, this is a couple of reflections I want to have, and there's two things I kind of want to reflect on all that. Sort of philosophy, theology, some big words like paradigmatic. You can look it up later. Um, And two things I want to sort of say out of that. First off is to obey God is to love. Uh, Last week we talked about the 70 elders, and they were recognized as leaders of the people because of the rhythm of their life. And this is kind of an as it were, because it's a a Trinitarian formula, and the 70 elders in Numbers 22 were following a Trinitarian formula, I would imagine. Um, But I think they were, they might not have known it. And they were recognized, they were to recognize the authority hear God's voice, receive His Spirit, and then serve as elders. They worshiped the Father, rested in the Spirit, and obeyed the Son. That was supposed to be the rhythm. And if they didn't worship the Father and rest in the Spirit, they could not obey the Son. Like it, it followed. Obeying followed worship and rest. So obedience, I argued, followed worship, not preceded it. I think this passage says something more about that. If love is indeed the summit of obedience, then it flows naturally out of worship. It is not disjointed, but natural. Love 
comes out of our worship because it obedience flows from a right view of God. A wrong view of God leads to hypocrisy. A right view of God leads to obedience, which finds its summit in love. When God changes us from God-haters to God-lovers, we hear His voice, receive His Spirit, and respond in love. That's how it happens. When God changes you, that moment when the power of God was displayed in your life, and you were a God-hater, and He made you a God-lover, you heard his voice, maybe not audibly, but you did. There was a call and you responded to it. You received the Spirit and you worshipped as love. I think we need to find that pattern in our life of hearing his voice, receiving his Spirit, and responding in worship. And the second reflection I wanted to have, a uh, sort of response to all that, is Jesus is the embodiment of love. Specifically, the life of love. If we are to know ourselves, we must know Jesus. There's no psychology without theology. I just made that up. Hashtag Sam quotes. Man. This was the trap that the Pharisees fell into. They became hypocrites who said one thing and did another, which is what a hypocrite does. It's from the what Greek for actor or something like that. One who wears a mask. Say one thing and do another, just like that second son. Even believing what they said about themselves, all because they could not see God or hear his voice, recognize his authority. By what authority do you do these things? Well, you don't get it. Mine. God himself. This then is an act of the will. To be changed from a God-hater to a God-lover is God's doing. But he doesn't do it against your will. You must stop resisting his work. Um, sorry, that's kind of heady theology. I might skip over that. The greatest among you shall be your servant. This is Jesus' summary statement. And um, the, the last shall be first is all throughout the previous passage. But in 23 verses 11 and 12, it says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humble. humble and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. This, too, must be the pattern of our lives. And here, perhaps Wade's favorite theological concept and practical piece of advice is, what's that S word you always end up using at the end of every week? Surrender. I'm going to go with surrender. Yeah? It's not, hopefully that's the S word you use at the end of every week. <laughs> Depends how bad you thought the lesson was, I guess. <laughs> Become the least so that God may exalt you. James 4.7 describes this pattern of spiritual growth. I don't know if you guys ever memorized James 4.7 uh, and 8. It is, humble yourself, resist the devil, draw near to God. That's sort of the paradigm of spiritual growth that James is giving in chapter 4. If you want to know God, admit that you cannot on your own, get low, and get least. That way you can see and recognize the authority of Jesus, and then you can know yourself. Uh, I think, and this is just a couple of practical things I got to thinking about uh, even today. Uh, this is the identity crisis of the modern church. We become expedient rather than expectant. 
because we've lost sight of who Jesus is. You have an identity crisis then. You need to get things done instead of expect God to work. And um, I think it takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of patience, a lot of prayer, a lot of getting low to really see God work in his church because you don't know who you are. You're not really a church. You're just actors on a stage. And this is, well, and this is a little more dangerous ground for me because I'm not uh, the most politically savvy. But this is the identity crisis, I think, of modern Israel. If all they have from an earthly perspective is Phariseeism to do what is expedient for the nation, without Jesus, you have an identity crisis as the nation of Israel because you're going to end up doing what's expedient. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't know who you are, but you can't recognize it in yourself because everything has to be seen through Jesus somehow. And without him, you're going to do what's expedient. And I think if Jesus were to come to the modern nation of Israel and it was politically expedient to crucify him again, that's exactly what they would do. And I'm not saying that they therefore don't deserve your support. That is exactly wrong. But you, you come to a crunch and an identity crisis when you don't perceive your identity through the person of Jesus. And that was a lot. But uh, that's what I wanted to point at from the Law and the Prophets in the book of Matthew. I'm uh, interested in your feedback. And if you say surrender.